0: By the 3rd of June, 1861, America was at war. As the echoes of cannon fire faded at Fort Sumter, thousands of Southerners joined the Confederate Army. Among them was an 18-year-old engineering student from Virginia named James Hanger. He had enlisted to whip the Yankees, but he had no idea that he was destined to change millions of lives In another way after serving two days his world was turned upside down that day in Philippi Virginia Hanger was captured after a cannonball tore through his leg a Union surgeon amputated his leg after which Hanger was freed in a prisoner exchange and returned to his family home seemingly crippled for life
1: He kind of goes into his room for three months and his family sit down in the parlor of their house and they worry about him. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of banging, shuffling back and forth, and I think they're generally concerned about his condition.
0: Emmeline Mayhew is a historian at London's Imperial College. Before the Civil War, she says a battlefield amputee's prospects were grim.
1: The Chances are they won't be able to have a prosthetic fitted. They're going to have a short, relatively miserable life on crutches or sat somewhere where they can't really move. There are wheelchairs, but they're not available to people who don't have any money.
0: Shrouded in worry, James Hanger's family listened and waited.
1: And then on the day that I think of as as being this real turning point, they hear his door open and then they hear something extraordinary. And it's James Hanger on the prosthetic leg with a knee joint that he as an engineer has designed and he's coming downstairs because he's designed a leg where the knee can bend. And if the knee can bend, he can lift it with his thigh muscles it means that he can hold on to a banister, but he can come downstairs. And although it's not digital, it's a paradigm shift. And I think of that sound of this young engineer coming downstairs and being able to walk into his parents' parlor, and everything changes.
0: It was a genesis moment in modern prosthetics. Hanger was determined that unlike the straight, unimaginative peg legs of his era, his prosthetic would mimic a natural limb. His wooden leg, carved from the wood used to make barrels, incorporated rubber bumpers with a hinged knee and ankle. For James Hanger, the first recorded amputee of the Civil War, it was the beginning of a global enterprise that he would oversee until his death in 1919 and which still bears his name today. Hanger would go on to develop and market the first mass-produced, affordable prosthetic limb. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies.
2: You might say Craig Hutto is part bionic man. Arms, legs. There's
3: over
1: 3 million amputees every year who need a new
3: or replacement. A
0: medical dream comes true.
1: I went from being disabled to somebody that might even be super able.
0: Just as the Civil War had transformed a nation, it changed medicine and prosthetics, too. Where in the past, a catastrophic injury to a limb might be a death sentence, Union and Confederate surgeons became adept at performing amputations in the field, tens of thousands of them, by some estimates.
1: We always talk about how much war drives medicine. In fact, it's not so much war. There's something a little bit more subtle than that. What really drives medicine are unexpected survivors.
0: Emily Mayhew.
1: It's the unexpected survivor that the the person who lives to require more treatment, to require the prosthetic limb, that's the thing that really changes medicine. But unquestionably, on both sides of of the American Civil War, the surgeons get incredibly skilled. They get very quick at amputation. They learn that the best thing for prosthetic fit after the, the patient has gone home is to leave as much flesh and muscle as possible.
0: The needs of thousands of Civil War survivors fueled a growing prosthetics industry, which soon found itself serving a new category of clients.
1: Prosthetics is is not only driven by by the military, it's driven by the demands of industrialization. So very large-scale industrial projects, the laying of railways, the digging of canals, the laying of roads, the creation of very large factories, what they have in common with war is that they injure young men who are going to have long lives, and they're going to have long lives where they want to walk uh, or be able to ride a bicycle.
0: For the upper-body amputees of the late 19th century, maintaining their quality of life often depended on their ability to take on an industrial job, and just as importantly, to commute to work. This is where an old pirate trope saved the day.
1: One of the things that the hooked hand has a resurgence uh, is because people want to be able to hold a bicycle handlebar. So even if they've lost an upper limb, whether they've lost a hand or at the elbow or at the shoulder, they want to be able to hold on to a bicycle handlebar or indeed the bar of one of the new underground trains or one of the buses, and they can still go to work.
0: By the 20th century, prosthetics manufacturers, including James Hanger's company, had expanded to Europe. They were just in time. When the Great War began in 1914, the prosthetics industry was ready, but battlefield surgeons were not.
1: There was just enough time between the American Civil War and the First World War for it to be a new generation of doctors, for them to look back and say, well, this was over 50 years ago. How is this going to be relevant? And also the American Civil War is... is is really, again, the scale and the horror of the injuries are so bad that there was a concern, particularly amongst the British uh, medics, that if they show too much material, if they show too many images, that it's going to put off young doctors coming and joining up with the war effort. So although the industry, the prosthetic industry, is ready, The medical profession is not ready, not on the scale that's required. So many of the lessons that those southern and northern doctors learn on the battlefields in the American Civil War will be relearned on the Western Front.
0: Throughout the wars of the 20th century, prosthetic technology changed little, yet battlefield medicine made huge advances. Mobile army surgical hospitals in Korea or mass units revolutionized battlefield medicine. A decade later in Vietnam, care for the wounded became even more efficient.
1: You've got fast evacuation of casualties, highly trained paramedics, the team medic in the field saving a life, getting them onto to a, a, a motorized ambulance or to a helicopter, getting them to a very well-staffed field hospital of highly experienced surgeons and so lives that would have been lost otherwise are in fact saved. There was also this idea, it's, it's perhaps one of the most extraordinary developments in prosthetics isn't made in the prosthetic company, it's made in the field hospital where people understand that perhaps people can survive wounds that they would otherwise, or they would have been taught, that people will will die from. So in Vietnam, this is the point at which we see a really significant cohort in our era, so not from the First World War era, but in our era, of people who survive losing both their legs. It was medical dictum before the outbreak, at the beginning of the 1960s, that if you lost both your legs, your quality of life was going to be very poor, and the chances are you you weren't going to survive. But in the Vietnam War, the surgeons say, well, if you lose both your legs, we're going to save you. We're going to save you, and we're going to send you home.
0: Yet for all the surgical advancement, prosthetic limbs themselves had advanced little since the days of James Hanger. Soon after the Vietnam era, all of that changed. New technologies from composites, advances in robotics, biomechanical innovation, and the microprocessor... Opened up vast possibilities for prosthetic users. To the brightest minds in prosthetics, it soon became evident that these advances would help overcome barriers that had lingered since the days of James Hanger, such as how to design a prosthetic leg to negotiate stairs, steep grades, or uneven ground with the relative ease of a natural limb. Since 1890, that mission has driven many of the brightest minds of the British prosthetics firm Blatchford. The digital age would see a number of eureka moments at Blatchford, but not the instant solution kind you see in the movies.
3: In my dream, I think eureka moments happen instantly. Sahid Zahidi is a technical director at Blatchford. I take a lot of notes. I'm very famous for writing everything which comes to my head and I probably never go back to them. But it is is there. There are visions. I think the eureka moment comes from when you are involved in in the thinking process. And in my experience, the creative part of it comes from not being scared to think of every solution. In the 1980s, the team at Blatchford pioneered the
0: use of carbon fiber prosthetics, providing more flexibility, durability, and strength. A decade later, they introduced microprocessors to a prosthetic knee and eventually an ankle. After that, the next innovation felt self-evident.
3: I think having then the microprocessor control ankle and the microprocessor control knee it was natural thing to do. Now why not put the two together and complete that picture?
0: That thinking led to Blatchard's link system, an above-the-knee prosthetic limb whose ankle and knee talk to each other and coordinate their actions, providing amputees with unprecedented ease and confidence. It combines four microprocessors and seven sensors across the knee, and ankle joints. These components are constantly gathering and exchanging data, allowing the leg to adjust its hydraulics and pneumatics to adapt to changes in the terrain. Today, the link system is used by roughly 3,000 to 4,000 amputees. For Saeed Zahidi, refining the technology is good, but it's only worthwhile once it's widely accessible and affordable.
3: I couldn't really put a hand in the sort of line of time and say that was the time which occurred to me. It was more the question of when can we mass produce it, when can we make it available for everyone, and what features can we add which will move one step closer towards the total rehabilitation. Zahidi and
0: his team also understand that one of the great barriers in the field of prosthetics isn't technology, but finding ways to manage pain. Emily Mayhew.
1: We know that in the United Kingdom in particular, 50% of prosthetic wearers experience pain to the point at which they are unable to work. And interestingly, I don't want to use, really want to use the word interesting because actually tragically, they're experiencing two kinds of pain. They're experiencing residual limb pain. So that's pain in what they've got left in the body that they've got left but they're also experiencing phantom limb pain. So they're experiencing pain and really distracting sensations in the limb they've no longer got. We've done some research on our cohort for amputees from Iraq and Afghanistan in the 21st century, and we we know that there's been about a 1% improvement in pain outcomes for prosthetic wearers from the First World War. So in 100 years, We haven't got very far on what is really the most significant challenge for a prosthetic wearer.
0: Zahidi agrees. For his team, pain management falls under the first of two C's that are essential for successful prosthetic, comfort and confidence. Managing the effects of discomfort or sweat in a residual limb is no less important than the mightiest microprocessors and situational awareness sensors. As for the next step, if the joints of a prosthetic limb can talk to one another to govern movement, how long before a prosthetic limb is connected directly to the brain? For one group of trailblazers, it would take a chance encounter with a raccoon to answer that question. Canton, Ohio. It's early one June morning in 2015 when Melissa Loomis heard a commotion in her backyard. Her dogs had cornered a raccoon. Her instinct to protect all three animals kicked in. Loomis was an animal lover and volunteer at the Stark County Dog Pound. She ran out to see that one of the dogs had the raccoon by the tail. Moving quickly, she caught the raccoon and released it over the fence, but not before the animal had bit her lower right arm. Her husband rushed her to the emergency room, where it was determined that the raccoon did not carry rabies, but it did carry a severe infection. Over the weeks that followed, the wound worsened, then became septic. That December, Melissa Loomis's right arm would have to be amputated above the elbow. Her surgeon referred her to the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University
2: in Maryland. So Melissa's a really, it's a phenomenal story, and she's a a phenomenal individual. Mike McLaughlin is vice president
0: of research for Zateo Tech and the former chief engineer
2: at the Applied Physics Lab. So the surgeon that did Melissa's operation to remove her arm, what he wanted to do was to ensure that she was able to use, you know, an advanced prosthetics. And he'd been watch, kind of watching what people had been, had been doing in the field and was, was aware of it. Behind all advanced prosthetics is the right surgery and proper rehab.
0: In Melissa's case, the surgeon, Dr. A.J. Seth,
2: remapped the nerves in her arm to interact with the prosthetic. What he did was a technique known as targeted re So if somebody has an amputation, the limb is gone, but the nerves that used to say run down to the hand are still there, and they're just not going anywhere. And so what targeted re does is actually give those nerves a, a place to go. And so you have basically two types of nerves. You have the motor nerves, and those are the ones that move your muscles so you move your hand or your arm and then you have sensory nerves that allow you know your your receptors in your hand and, and elsewhere in your arm to send signals back to the, to the brain. And so what he did was took some of the motor nerves and attached those to pieces of muscle. So now if she thought, for example, if she wants to move her index finger, the nerve that used to fire the muscles that would pull those tendons, would now flex a little piece of muscle somewhere in her upper arm, and we could detect that. With those nerves remapped, Melissa worked with McLaughlin's team at Johns Hopkins.
0: Since 2006, they've been working on a program initiated by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Its mission is to create upper body artificial limbs that restore near natural motor and sensory capability upper-limb amputees. Not only did the prosthetic arm respond to commands from Melissa's brain, it went one better, feeding feelings and sensations back to her brain. It was prosthesis and brain in conversation.
2: And so this is really amazing because what you're essentially doing is is tapping into the, the old circuits... So the brain remembers that the arm used to be there and still remembers where those nerves went. So it becomes a very easy way for someone like Melissa to control the prosthetic because she can think about moving the prosthetic and it'll move. And then when the prosthetic encounters an object, we can actually take that sensation, say pressure, and actually feed it back to those, those same nerves And she actually will perceive it as sensation in her fingers.
0: Without looking at her prosthetic hand, Melissa could grasp a styrofoam cup without crushing it and pick up an egg without breaking it. And to Mike McLaughlin, it's just the beginning
2: of what's possible in neuroprosthetics. I mean, the tools we have now are still pretty crude. When you move your your hand, you, you're involving, you know, probably 100 billion neurons in that task. We're seeing, you know, just a handful of those right now. Blatchford Sahid Zahidi believes we're the renaissance of prosthesis. Mike McLaughlin concurs. Prosthetics for, for many years was um, a, a very static field. There wasn't a lot of progress made. And it's really within the past... 10 to 15 years that we've really seen kind of this merging of, you know, advanced engineering, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, uh, computer science, uh, biology all together to, to really do some very remarkable things. 3D printing has, for many, become part of
0: the Renaissance. Initiatives are in the works that enable amputees to scan and print their own customized prosthetics, dramatically reducing the time and cost of manufacturing. Behind all these remarkable initiatives are equally remarkable people. One fair morning in January of 1982, 17-year-old Hugh Herr and a 20-year-old friend began their ascent of Mount Washington. Then the weather changed. Faced with 100 mile an hour winds and a wind chill of minus 110 degrees Fahrenheit, the two men dug snow caves and bundled together as hypothermia set in, and with it, disorientation. Four days melded together to feel like one single 24 hour period. Death felt near. They were discovered by a snowshoer and airlifted to a hospital where Herr was diagnosed with severe frostbite. Soon after, both of his legs were amputated below the knees. Today, Professor Hur leads a prosthetics innovation team at the MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where to him, the renaissance is just beginning. Not only does Professor Hur embody the Media Lab's work He provides invaluable personal insights. He vividly recalls the labeling
4: that came with becoming an amputee. I was told by doctors and nurses and all of society that the technology was wonderful. It was what we had. It was always going to be what we had. And I should just live with it. I should just accept it because I was now broken and that was a fact of life.
0: To the young scientist who climb mountains for fun, this line of thought was unacceptable.
4: And I quickly realized that that was complete nonsense. I wasn't broken. The technology that was offered to me was absolutely ridiculous. It was without computation, without sensing, without actuation. They were dumb limbs lacking any type of sophistication. The cause of my disability was the technology, not my body. That
0: defiance would shape her's creative outlook. Early in his recovery, he realized that the artificial part of himself was malleable and could assume any number of shapes and functions. He developed a specially crafted pair of prosthetic legs, slightly longer and lighter than natural ones. That actually made him a better climber. The prosthetics developed at the Media Lab today employ what they call neuro-embodied design, looking at the prosthetic-brain relationship in a whole new way.
4: So most of the time when designers design, they view the human body as invariant and unchangeable. And they designed components to fit that unchanging body we're relaxing that in neural body design and we're think, thinking about how can we fundamentally change the human body, its, its proteins, its organs, its tissues, to really have a, a more clean, cohesive communication between the nervous system and synthetic computation.
0: As a walking
4: illustration
0: of his team's work, Professor Hur's legs are elegantly robotic-looking, a number of computers and a dozen sensors work with a series of muscle-like actuators, allowing them to walk, run, jump, and even dance, with a confidence that generations of amputees could not have imagined. HERS team imagines advanced prosthetics moving sports beyond the sort of running blades that Oscar Pistorius to the world of track and field, he sees augmentation technology inspiring a new generation of extreme
4: sports. We will have exoskeletons that augment running that will lead to power running. We'll have exoskeletons that augment jumping that will lead to, you know, super turbocharged basketball and swimming and climbing and on and on and on.
3: Her
0: has even mused about prosthetic wings, giving humans flight, but stresses that before we can fly, we need to learn to walk. Like the teams at Blatchford and Johns Hopkins, the one at the Media Lab dedicates a large amount of its time and resources to understanding and quantifying the surprisingly complex dynamics of
4: walking. A person with a, a normal biological limbs, you know, they, they go up and down steps and slopes and their, their legs are doing these extraordinarily complex movements um, and they're, they're, the person is not consciously aware of what's happening. Um, it's really funny that in the science of biomechanics and uh, neural control, You know, we we still don't have a very, very deep understanding of how biological walking works, which is kind of funny because most humans can walk, but we can't describe how it works. And there
0: lies the irony of prosthetic innovation. Driven in no small part by the ravages of war, teams of the world's greatest minds are revealing fantastic new possibilities, but that can only happen once we attain a deeper understanding of the complex, magnificent human machine. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. To learn more about the fascinating world of prosthetics, you can head to our website at delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. That's delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Thanks for listening.